Hello, just before we begin this week's episode, I'm walking a very special musical Camino in May 2024, and I'm inviting you to join me. Won't you join me? Won't you join me? I'm walking from Leon to Santiago de Compostela in the first three weeks of May next year. I'll be performing concerts along the way. Pilgrims walking with me will pay a fee and every cent will go towards making my new album, Storyteller. We are already selling spots, so if you're interested, join now. Just go to danmullinsmusic.com. There's a list of frequently asked questions and a basic itinerary. Won't you join me? Won't you join me? Join me for a magical musical Camino. To reserve your spot, go to danmullinsmusic.com. Won't you join me? Won't you join me? Welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. It's great to have your company. This is a weekly podcast about El Camino de Santiago, or the way of St. James. St. James was one of Jesus Christ's apostles. He walked beside Jesus as he spread his message of love and kindness. He later travelled to Spain to teach Christ's word, and later returned to the Holy Land to be martyred for his faith. The Camino is a pilgrimage. Pilgrims walk in the footsteps of St. James. They walk a journey of discovery. They walk a journey of acceptance. And they walk a journey of love and kindness. And they have a really good time doing it. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you're thinking of walking the Camino, of becoming a pilgrim, you already are a pilgrim in many ways. A wilgrim. You will get there one day to break bread with other pilgrims from around the world. Pilgrims you've never met, and yet somehow, in the fading light of a Spanish afternoon, you bond. You form very real and powerful friendships. I say powerful because you're often moved in ways you didn't think you would be. I say real because the conversation will inevitably go very deep, very quickly. You'll surprise yourself, such as you discover this capacity to listen and to learn, and perhaps you are moved to share a little of yourself. You'll find someone willing to listen, a fellow pilgrim. Time seems to stand still on those long Spanish afternoons, sitting in the street on plastic chairs or by the river with your feet easing in the cooling stream or in a church, praying quietly to whomever you pray to. Lord, give me the strength to carry on, and bless the pilgrim I met late yesterday afternoon. Help them find what they need to find on this ancient spiritual journey. As we drift toward Christmas, we reflect on the year that was, a difficult year for many of us, me included, a year of discovery and perspective. I had to rely on time. It was to be my saving grace. Time. It just seemed to fly by this year. 
Remember the Dr. Seuss quote I used earlier in the year? How did it get so late so soon? It's night before it's afternoon. December is here before it's June. My goodness, how the time has flown. How did it get so late so soon? Well, the American motivational speaker Dennis Waitley said, Time is an equal opportunity employer. Each human being has exactly the same number of hours and minutes every day. Rich people can't buy more hours. Scientists can't invent new minutes. And you can't save time to spend it on another day. Even so, time is amazingly fair and forgiving. No matter how much time you've wasted in the past, you still have an entire tomorrow. Well, we're going to talk about time this week. My guest is Matthew S. Wilson. He's released a book called Once Upon a Camino. He's on the line from Melbourne. Welcome, Pilgrim. Dan, nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. First of all, tell us how the Camino came into your life. Uh, the Camino, so I, I grew up uh, here in Melbourne, Australia. Um, but when I was in my early 20s, uh, I travelled to England. Um, like many, probably um, back then, lots of Aussies pack up and go over to England on a working holiday visa. And I, and I did the same. And look, it was fantastic. Uh, the ability to work in London, but travel uh, into Europe on, on long weekends and whenever I had a break. And that's sort of where the Camino entered my life. Um, I uh, traveled to Sevilla or Seville uh, for my, that was the very first time I went to Spain. And it was absolutely love at first sight. I fell in love with the city, but really the country, the people, the language, the food, the culture. And, you know, it was probably on that trip where I had that first marker almost or that first gallop shell pointing me to the Camino where you just saw some of the shells um, scattered around the city. And it was then, you know, over the next few years, every time I'd go back to Spain, I remember a trip where I went to Pamplona. Again, I saw those same shells. So I started to ask some of my friends and some of the locals, what are these? Uh, and that's where I found out a little bit about the Camino. Fantastic. I loved the book. It was truly a great read. You really captured the spirit and the feel of the Camino on the page. But before we talk about the book, Once Upon a Camino, tell us how writing came into your life. Oh, uh, writing's always been a part of me, ever since school, I suppose. Uh, it's my my safe place. It's my, um, my refuge where I go uh, to unwind and to relax. And it's also a place of, for me, even though it's a very solitary pursuit, it's a place of connection for me. It's a place where I'm able to uh, litigate the thoughts and feelings that I've got, put them down on page, and then that terrifying but magical moment where someone reads those and to, for them to have a response. Uh, like, I love that connection. So, look, it's never been my, uh, you know, my first, uh, you know, first job I've always I pursue a career within technology um, a lot of the writing I do in my day job is uh, certainly not what I like to do of an evening um, so it's always been there uh, probably writing and walking are the two things mm. that I look um, you know for for solace in and they're so interconnected for me writing and walking are they're, um, two sides of the same coin how fantastic so quickly tell us about devil in the detail your first novel yeah, that was um, uh, that came out. I'm just trying to think. Uh, it came out a, a while ago, um, and it was 
the first novel that I had in me, and I it was an idea that I had of uh, good people are capable of doing bad things. Mm-hmm. Equally, I think bad people, and I guess when I say good and bad, it's almost doing the imagined um, air quotes. But the bad people can do good things as well, and and I think people and life there's a lot of grey. And so the devil's in the detail was teasing around that. It was looking at a concept of what if a London cabbie uh, died saving uh, someone that was in an attack and they wake up in purgatory and the book premise is if they're able to uh, meet all of the Ten Commandments, they can go to heaven. Uh, if they have breached or, or, or you know, committed sins in those commandments, they go to hell. Um, and it's, uh, you know, kind of a surreal um, drama. It's a love story, a uh, bit of a comedy, and it's a play on all of the things that, you know, people do throughout across, you know, the span of their lives. How will we look back on that? Hmm. I love it. Your bio says I'm a Melbourne-based writer who, under the pretense of writing novels, sits in Melbourne cafes creating stories. Where does the inspiration come from? It comes from, it's, it's a flippant answer to say everywhere, but it is always, I feel like, a, um, you know, our brains are a bit of a microphone that's always on. And I think whether or not that's what you see in the news, what you see in the workplace, um, also in art and literature, I'm amazed that some of the stories that I've had uh, have come from, you know, pieces of art. And, and for me, growing up in Melbourne and then going, to Europe, having completely different art and access to art that I didn't have in Melbourne. Um, I found that incredibly inspiring, but equally just stories at parties. You know, you'll hear about someone that you really know and and they'll tell you something about themselves and you think, huh, what would I have done in that situation? And then as you start writing, what would this character do? And I think that, again, that's the beauty of writing. You're able to um, devise these scenarios and scenes and challenges and to test your characters and to see what they do. So what makes a good story? I know we're all, uh, everyone's got their own taste, so I'll go with for me. For me, I like characters that uh, have multiple layers. So I like characters where you may uh, think you know what they would do or who they are, but as the plot unwinds, you start to find out more about themselves. But importantly, the characters start to find out more about themselves. Uh, I like stories that uh, have a plot that drives us forward. Um, not everyone does, but I certainly uh, I earth the stories where uh, things happen and each scene something changes, a little bit like um, writing a film script. Every scene, you know, you really want there to be a change. And for me, a story that keeps the reader wanting to drive forward and to go to the next page, uh, I, I love that and those are the stories I like to create. And having characters where both the reader and the character themselves is learning about that character. Mm. Uh, those two elements for me um, are, are really important. And you do that very well in Once Upon a Camino. And I found myself saying to myself, the Camino is the perfect place to tell this story. Oh, thanks, Dan. Uh, I, you know, I think part of that is probably because the Camino is the exact place 
where I came up with the story. Um, I, at the time, you mentioned my first novel, The Devil's in the Detail. Uh, I, look, I walked the Camino Frances in 2010, and I was about halfway done with The Devil's in the Detail. Unfortunately, though, I'd done the easy part. I'd started the novel, and I knew how it would end. I didn't know the middle part. And so part of me walking the Camino, not the only part, but part of it, I thought, you know what? I love walking. That's a great way for me to process how are we going to solve this story. It didn't quite go as planned, though, because as I walked, other things popped into my head, other uh, themes and stories, and I was learning so much about Spain and the Camino. Once Upon a Camino started forming into my brain. Mm. And so rather than finish the book that I was supposed to be finishing, I found I started creating a new book and a new story. Yeah, the, let's talk about the book. Tom is a 28-year-old investment banker. He's from London and lives with his girlfriend, Anna, and he wants to propose. And he flies over to Spain to, to, to meet Anna's family. Uh, and when he meets Anna's grandfather, Tito, he says, look, no problems, Tom, but first you need to walk the Camino de Santiago, an 800-kilometre pilgrimage across Spain. That's the simple press, Precy, but the novel is really about time. So how difficult is it or was it to place yourself in Tom's shoes to create a narrative that was probably against your better judgment? Uh, yeah, it, it was because there was a lot. There's a bit of Tom in me. I mean, to be fair, there's a bit of me in a lot of those characters, but Tom's probably the closest to me and the one that probably my friends and family go, oh, you're Tom, right? Um, and so it was kind of – I was able to decide what he would do. I could really identify yeah. with him. I mean, the example I would give is uh, at that stage, a lot of my friends were getting married and – that, that's where part of the premise came from. A lot of them would say, oh, I did the right thing and I spoke to uh, my girlfriend's uh, parents and I asked for their blessing. And I guess as I was walking along, I thought, what if the parents had said no? What would you have done? <laughs> would yeah, you have yeah. stopped? Would you have... Um, and, you know, some ideas you have for books or, or stories and you think, oh, okay, well, that was interesting for a, a five seconds and you throw it away. That one clung with me. I couldn't shake it. I thought, what would you literally do? Um, and so, yeah, Tom, I think it's an interesting character in that he very much lives with his head. Uh, I think he equates happiness with success and he's got a very successful life. And by extension, he thinks he's got a happy life. And so that was an interesting, uh, character to play with, particularly with the Camino, because I think the Camino strips a lot of that back yeah. and it really does make you reassess what happiness is. Yeah, and his journey is very much a pilgrimage in in many different levels. And when you talked earlier about creating characters with different levels, that's you can see that immediately because you find yourself going, "Okay, how's he going to how's he going to work all of, all of this out?" The book's promo says it's a story of friendship and connection, of following your heart despite your better judgment. It's written for those who've walked the path to Santiago and others who simply enjoy life's unpredictable journey and the strangers we meet along the way. I loved reading the part about Tito and Diego. Tell us about them. Because Tito was considering his time. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we meet Tito. Tito is, of course, Anna's grandfather. 
Um, he's 92 years old. This, this story actually takes place in 2010, which is the same year that I walked it. Um, for the listeners, for that, just for a point of reference, the iPhone 4 had just come out. And that, that was my sort of um, right. watermark <laughs> of, of, of time. Um, and so we meet Tito, and he's in the shadow of the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela, uh, reflecting on his life and also reflecting on the knowledge that Tom, who's the boyfriend of his granddaughter, is travelling over from England to seek his blessing for her to get married. And uh, Diego is the uh, cafe owner, and he's a little bit younger but still fairly old, and the two men, two Spanish men, are reflecting on their lives and reflecting on this this looming decision that's going to happen. Yeah. And and you're right. Tito reflects on the fact that he hears a song uh, from one of the buskers in the square and it reminds him of the first time he heard that song when he walked the Camino de Santiago many, many years ago. And all of the uh, – like when I, when I walked the Camino, I certainly um, spent time with – Pilgrim's talking about regret and perhaps regretting the things they had done. But Tito's regretting the things he didn't do. He's regretting the decision he didn't make, regretting the love that he never followed. Uh, and so that's uh, – Diego and Tito are, I guess, uh, debating that really. Yeah. Um, and is, is happiness and love, is it too um, – you know, corny or aspirational, or should you be putting your heart before your head and making decisions that to others may seem foolish, but in the long run actually might be more fulfilling? Yeah, it's a great passage of the book. And I loved that Diego learned English so he could listen to English football on the BBC. <laughs> yeah, I um, yeah, and actually, um, without without any spoilers, that comes back later in the book as a as a, as a little crucial part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it does. It does. It's great. <laughs> when you mentioned the busker in the scene um, that Tito heard, you wrote the busker's voice was mesmerizing, a siren's call to passing boats. That's beautiful imagery because I kind of felt like the passing boats were the pilgrims. Yeah, well, thank you. And and I agree. I mean, I've sat in that square. I'm sure you have as well. And, you know, I've, I've enjoyed a, a Café Con Lecce and watched the pilgrims. Like, I love people watching yeah. in any city that I'm in. But Santiago is one of the absolute best because you've got the pilgrims that have just arrived and you can see the exhaustion and the elation on their face. Mm. Equally, you know, you've kind of got those pilgrims that may have been there for a day or two and you can see the Camino Blue starting you know, to set in, you've got the locals. Um, so it's just a fascinating mixture of, of people and emotion. Yeah, it is. I love that too. So when I mentioned there that that was a beautiful passage of writing, is writing easy for you, Matthew? It's not. Um, and I, I would say storytelling and writing are, are two different things. And I think neither are easy. Um, and in full transparency, I thought I was okay at it and I realised I'm not. And and I was probably halfway through Once Upon the Camino, uh, Camino which it took about a decade, honestly, because life is catches up with me as well and it's not like I was really able to dedicate the time to just knuckle down. Mm. But when I did, I actually took some time off work and I thought, you know what, this story is important to me. Should probably take a page out of Tom's book and, and maybe lead a little bit more with my heart than my head. So I, I dedicated, took a year off to do it. 
And I got there and I thought, hang on, I'm not sure I'm a great writer. Um, and so I went out and I did a whole bunch of courses. I um, studied and studied and studied to, you know, like that imagery was not easy for me to do. Yeah. But I do think, I think it can be taught and learned and practiced and improved. And I'll never be um, Palo Coelho, but I hope that um, all of that work kind of have paid off. So I really appreciate the compliment, to be honest. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I really did. And we're going to talk more about it. But one plot twist we can talk about is something that's happened to many of us, many pilgrims. Tom had his backpack stolen and his whole world pretty much unravels from that moment on, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it does. Um, and I think we've all had that moment that, oh, no, <laughs> I, my pocket feels a lot emptier than it should and where's my wallet or um, I'm sure I left my bag there. So Tom has that moment uh, actually waking up on the train from Bayonne to St. John. Uh, he's very happily chatting to pilgrims. He falls asleep and when he wakes up, he's at the station, the bag is missing. Uh, and it's all... It does start to spiral a little bit for Tom from that perspective. Um, he thinks he'll have a look at Lost and Found. It's not there. He thinks he'll go to one of the albergues and see if the other pilgrims may have handed in. He can't find those. He can't find the, the people that he was talking to. And it starts becoming a bit perilous for Tom. Introduce us to Fernando because... Tom has to get back to London. He's got to propose to Anna. He's got a job to go back to, but in the meantime, he's got to... Well, he walks the Camino, he meets pilgrims, and, and this extraordinary story unfolds. But just introduce our listeners to Fernando. So uh, Fernando is uh, a little bit older than Tom. He's in his mid-30s. Um, he is Andalusian. Uh, he's from the city of Cueva, and he's walking the Camino... Uh, for his own reasons, he's uh, much different than Tom. Uh, clearly, he's Spanish. He's he's a very stoic character, um, a little bit stern and withdrawn, or or at least guarded about the reasons why he's walking the Camino. Uh, it'd be impossible to talk about Fernando without uh, his companion Pablo. Yeah, Pablo's uh, Spanish as well, also from Andalusia. But the complete opposite of Fernando. He's jovial. He's lighthearted. He's looking for an adventure. Uh, he loves uh, Cervantes. He, in, you know, is some ways looking to have some sort of adventure like Don Quixote along along the path. And so Fernando and Pablo meet Tom at a time when he needs help. <laughs> Um, and it's a little bit of found family, I guess. Um, you couldn't think of um, a much more different found family, but Tom certainly needs help. And Fernando would be the first person to say he doesn't. He knows what he's doing. He knows why he's going to Santiago. Uh, it's a deeply important uh, time for him, particularly given it's the holy year. And uh, he's not entirely sure that he needs to have uh, Pablo or Tom along the journey, but we do get a sense that he needs help more than he knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One other aspect of it I found really interesting and, and enjoyable was the focus on the Basque culture. What did you learn about the Basque people in the course of your research? 
I I think that happened on some of my first trips um, to Spain. So I went to San Sebastian, and I do recall seeing a poster uh, saying, uh, look, if you're English, don't try and speak Spanish or French, just speak English because you're in the Basque country. And, I, you know, th- that was so different for me. So I was able to talk to some of um, my friends and some of the locals just about the, the understanding of that. What I learned on that trip and in subsequent trips and then my research is um, the deeply uh, proud and rich history and culture of the Basque people, um, the pride, I think. I think we've all seen the Basque flags when, when walking through the Navarra um, region. And, uh, you know, the uh, honestly, the, the struggles that the Basque people had in the 20th century, like with um, Franco's dictatorship, uh, you know, they weren't really able to express their culture or they weren't able to have that autonomous, um, you know, pride and, and, and be, be visible with their language and their customs and their flag. Uh, and I found that very uh, interesting. I, I felt, you know, I've always been a keen uh, observer of history, particularly the 20th century history, and, um, yeah, it was something which I didn't know a lot about. So that was something that I enjoyed researching and having conversations with people and understanding a little bit more. And you captured uh, uh, one element of the Basque culture that I found when pretty much all of my interactions with them was their huge heart. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, all of the Basque people that I've, I've met and interacted with, uh, both here or in Spain, I, that heart comes through and that community comes through um, and the passion. And I love those things. Those are things that I'm really drawn to. It's just those types of people give me a lot of energy. Uh, I've got a lot of admiration. And oddly, it's not exactly who I am, to be honest. You know, like I, I try, I, it's who I want to be, <laughs> I think. And I think I, I like to align myself with people that do have, you know, heart mm. and passion about things like that gives me energy so yeah i agree tom runs with the bulls in pamplona did you run with the bulls i did not i no, did not no. i um i i i could probably save my story about the community but I'll, I'll tell this one it's uh so i've been to pamplona uh i was lucky enough uh, actually I, I mentioned a trip to san sebastian so um was with some friends in san sebastian they were visiting from australia and i said let's go to spain we uh, went to San Sebastian, was lovely, went to Bilbao, and we thought, let's do a day trip to Pamplona. So we hired a car, we drove down, uh, we parked on the outskirts because the city seemed uh, like some of the roads were a bit closed down. Uh, so we started walking into the city. I remember, you know, I'd been to Spain before and they hadn't, so I guess some element of me was thinking, oh, I can uh, be the, the tour guide. And I pointed to a you know a teenage boy and I said, oh, you see that kid over there? He's got the white uh, trousers on and the white shirt and he's got the red bandana. He said, that's that's the traditional you know uh, costume that the locals would wear when they're running the bulls here in Pamplona. And then we we walked on a little bit more and I said, oh, there's another one and uh, there was another one and we kept walking and pretty soon <laughs> the entire street was full filled with um, with men and women wearing those colours. And, of course, when we entered the city, we realised that it was actually Pamplona at the Tantamin Festival. So I had no idea. Um, and it was late in the afternoon. So the entire city 
had been having a massive fiesta all day. <laughs> we were the only ones not dressed in the customary attire, so we quickly had to go buy some clothes so we'd fit in. Um, went to a bar, had some sangria, and had a great time. Uh, so I've been to Pamplona, been to the Running with the Bulls, but it was all absolutely um, accidental and unintended. And as an observer. As an observer, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't want to give too much away. I'm happy to endorse the book because I really enjoyed it. But I mentioned earlier that time is very important because you use time to develop a combined narrative that the reader will really enjoy. Tell us about the process of writing and editing, Matthew. It must have been a lot of hard work. Uh, it, it really was. Like It does feel like uh, – so as I said, I did the Camino in 2010. Uh, the book came out um, you know, quite recently – and so it's over a decade of it. Now, um, there's the writing part that we spoke about a bit earlier. Um, there's the life part where that sort of intercedes, whether it's uh, work or family and other commitments. Um, but once that part's done, the editing, it's, you start again. So I've probably read that my manuscript at uh, least, I mean, there's, you don't. It, it doesn't really stop. It, it's just you don't get to the end and then start again. You're always sort of going back. But I'd ask them, I'd be 20 or 30 times that I've gone through the manuscript. So wow. I know every sentence. Um, I knocked one third of the words out. Um, and some of them were very easy to get rid of because uh, I was like, it was very superfluous. There were other lines of dialogue that <laughs> deeply distressed me to get rid of, but I knew it was the right thing. Um, and that was just the self-editing part. Uh, the next part was on this book, I decided because of the investment in time and how personal and how important the story was for me, I wanted to get a professional editor to help me um, go through it and make sure it was the best story that it could be. Um, I was really fortunate. I worked with an editor named Laura Finger, and Laura has an excellent eye for story, for character, for plot, for structure. Uh, and so even after that 20 or 30 times I'd gone through the manuscript and I'd carved out all of the words and I thought it was as close to perfect as possible, uh, Laura, in a very lovely way, said, look, uh, I beg to differ. <laughs> There's other things you could be doing with this story. Um, and she was right. On 100% of the time, she was right. And and so that took, uh, you know, the self-editing probably was a year. Yeah. And then editing with, with Laura was, you know, another six months. Um, then there's, you know, there's also a process of beta rate readers and having friends and families and associates read it and make sure that you're getting some good feedback. Um, people that have walked the Camino, that was important to me to get some feedback from pilgrims on did it feel authentic. So that kind of, you know, that part probably was about two years in total, the right. editing part. Um, also designing the cover. Again, I was really, really fortunate to uh, find an artist in New Zealand, Holly Dunn, and she did the uh, the cover. Uh, as I say to people, I'm really happy for people to judge my book by its front cover because the front cover, <laughs> I think, is uh, <laughs> spectacular. It's awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that takes, you know, that, that uh, sort of another three or four months. So it took a lot of time. So when you were talking about time at the beginning of the show, I was nodding my head in agreement. I, time is a big thing, so it's uh, but it's worth it for me. What about the historical aspect of the book? That must have taken a lot of research too. Yeah, it did. It did. I um, 
I was, I'm, so I'm really conscious. I'm not a historian. I'm a, I'm a really keen observer of history. Um, I'm really conscious it's not necessarily my history. And so I wanted to uh, talk to as many people uh, as I could. Um, some of this was so on the Camino itself and even all of those plaques and all of the, the little museums that you could go into. Uh, for anyone in October 2010, you would have seen me. I was the one reading every last word of a lot of those plaques. So that was probably the first step. Um, speaking with some locals, speaking with those that run some of the albergues, um, was another part of that. Reading clearly was a big part, and that, that's a very easy thing for me to be able to do in Melbourne. Um, there's a lot of fantastic books. Uh, the story definitely explores the Spanish Civil War, which occurred um, in sort of 1936 to 1939, because that sets the scene for, or, or plays, a, plays a, a key part yeah. in the story. Uh, and it also, um, you know, wanted to understand a lot more uh, after the Civil War, what was it like to live in Spain in the decades after that under um, Franco's regime? Uh, and that, again, was a lot of uh, reading, a lot of um, books, also a lot of documentaries wherever I could see those, particularly from the Basque perspective. It was like really interested to hear from their voices yeah. on what it was like and what it continues to be like. So, yeah, I was trying – someone did ask me recently, oh, how many hours – really hard to estimate that but it's certainly in the hundreds maybe bordering a thousand hours of wow. research and just wanting to make it again it's certainly not a history book but i do want there to feel like some form of uh, authenticity to some of the details there certainly is there's no question that's exactly why i asked you that question but tell me what's it like to be quietly sitting in a cafe in melbourne the world whir whirling all around you and you're writing a novel in rural Spain. It's, I must admit, yeah, it's uh, laughing just how you phrase that. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world, honestly, to be to have the, uh, the ability to, to be able to do that. Um, I, often I'll put uh, my headphones on and I'll have some music and I'll be listening to a, a, you know, a fantastic orchestral score or sometimes flamenco music just to get my head in the game uh, and just drown out just drown out everything else that might be happening in my life. I mentioned earlier it's my solace, it's, it's my kind of refuge. Uh, it, it's a long way to travel from Melbourne to, to Seville. Uh, so it, it's much easier for the five-minute walk to the cafe, open the laptop, put on some flamenco and write about Seville. <laughs> and it gives me... Not, it's not exactly the same. Um, certainly no sunburn, <laughs> but it it does it does help. It is like a little holiday for me. It is really nice to return to these cities um, that I love, and you know the Camino. I, I must admit, I shut myself off a little bit from the Camino as I was writing it. I think I was a bit worried that I was going to steal anyone else's story as a writer. I think I'm really worried about that and I want to just be true to the story I want to tell. So I didn't read a lot of Camino books or, or watch um, many shows and the like. So for me, writing the book was almost like being on the Camino for a decade. I know every town and the distance from that town to the other. I know the shape of the fountain because I, I knew if this book gets read, hopefully, you know, by those walking to Santiago, 
they'll see it. They'll be in that town and they'll say, no, actually, the scallop shell's on the left side of the road, not the right yeah. side. And I, I wanted to get that right. Yeah, and I think you did. But tell us about Sophia and her life, because she's the daughter of a humble fisherman in many ways, like St. James. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So Sophia, uh, look, they're all favourites, so I shouldn't pick one, but let's be honest, Sophia's my favourite character. Yeah. Um, I She is so uh, – she's a nurse, um, and she you're, you're right, her father – is a fisherman. Uh, she spent her youth on the uh, Balearic Sea with her dad um, fishing. He would teach her that she needed to have more patience. So she's by nature got a passionate way about her. She wants to help people. She wants to do the right thing, but she's very passionate about uh, what she thinks and what she feels. She probably gets that from her mother, who's um, extremely passionate as well. Her mother, unfortunately, her main ambition is for Sophia to get married and to start bearing grandchildren. So uh, we meet Sophia um, along the story where she herself um, is in a time of need and she's at a crossroads, um, both on the Camino and also uh, in her life of what to do and what choices should she make. Uh, again, she uh, her story collides with Tom's and Fernando's and Pablo's. A little bit like, um, in my experience, in the way my story collided with the people that I walked when I went to Santiago. Uh, Eve, albeit sometimes just fleetingly, um, for others it was you know many weeks. And I wanted to capture that. And as a writer or storyteller, it was really fun to be able to weave in. How does her story collide with theirs? Yeah, I loved it. I got, I became so fond of Sophia throughout the course of the book. It's funny. I'm going to read a passage of the book, if you don't mind, Matthew. Oh, that'd be an honour. Thanks, Dan. In this section of the book, it's raining heavily, raining cats and dogs. Fernando knotted the pieces of bark together into a makeshift crucifix and looped it through the chain-link fence. He crossed himself and mouthed a silent prayer before slinging his bag onto his shoulder. "'What the hell did you pray for?' asked Pablo. Fernando nodded to the sky. "'The sun.' Pablo looked appalled. Sophia placed her case down and picked up another two pieces of bark from the mud. She tied an identical crucifix and threaded it through the fence next to Fernando's. Thomas added a third. Pablo stared at the three makeshift crosses all rattling in the wind. I thought Thomas was the only crazy one. He bent down and made a cross of his own, tying it next to theirs. Dear God, save us from drowning. Their prayers went unanswered at first. The rain continued assaulting them as they slipped, slid and stumbled down the muddy slope. They eventually arrived in the village of Navarrete, where an old woman with a bent spine waved them into her house. Shedding their cloaks and jackets, the four pilgrims huddled around her stove and accepted warm cups of coffee. They patiently listened to the woman's complaints about each of her neighbours, and by the time they returned to the Camino, the rain had stopped. On the climb out of town, the clouds stretched apart like cotton wool, and they finally felt sunshine on their faces. Pablo looked sheepish. This isn't because we tied some sticks to the fence, Okay, I love it. Thank you. I must 
I must admit, as a writer, to hear your work um, narrated like um, as beautifully as you just did, like you've got a massive grin from ear to ear. Oh, so, nice. yeah, thanks, thanks for that, Dan. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. But I wanted to know, are you a religious person, Matthew? Uh, honestly, I grew up uh, like religious to a point. Um, you know, we would celebrate, my family would celebrate um, the religious aspects of Easter and Christmas um, and the like. We wouldn't go to church that often. And then what I found in my teen years is I started to drift, I think, from from my faith uh, until probably the early 20s when I thought, I don't think I'm there. Like I, I just couldn't, I didn't feel like I had that faith. And that's what the devil's in the detail, I think, was my way of processing that, to have a think about that. So I'm not um, by the... Uh, I guess the traditional um, definition. Uh, But I do know many of the things that these religions, you know, stand for and what they offer to people. I must admit, one of the things that I always like, um, not that I grew up Catholic, but certainly traveling in Spain a lot and on the Camino, I went to a lot of Catholic services and, and that gesture of just peace be with you and just shaking the hand and looking at the stranger next to you, I like that. What a beautiful thing. <laughs> so for me, I'm not religious, but I do, uh, I guess, marvel at those nice moments or those nice aspects of connection that religion offers. Because religion is, is in the book, there's history in the book. We talked about the research that you did. I wonder, do you actually enjoy the research aspect of writing? Uh, yes, I absolutely love it. Do you? But yeah. I, I, I do, I do. But I do worry that that is me procrastinating from getting words down onto the page. Right. It, 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 it certainly could be. It could be me saying, oh, I'll just read one more book on this before I feel like I know enough to write this chapter. Um, but I, I love it because I, um, I, I love to learn. And um, I think the key for me, that's probably a lot of the words that got taken out, if I'm honest. I probably had too much detail uh, of some of the research and what I've learned about the history. And I think the key for me was to be able to weave that in a little bit more seamlessly and not have it thrown in the face of the uh, the reader. So I, I love it. And I think the reason I do is because I find those stories fascinating from mm. all parts of history and theology. Like there's a lot of Camino myths and I love those. And I love I love sort of having the ability or the, the permission to tease around some of those myths and some of the origin stories of, you know, things like the arrows and the scallop shells and, um, you know, the chickens uh, in in the cathedral. Yeah. I, I found all of those stories, because some of those were verbally told by me by other pilgrims or uh, people in the albergue. So I found it was a nice way to be able to pass those stories on with my slant on them as well. Yeah, and you do it so well. Um, there are varied characters, Pablo, Sofia, Tito, Diego, Fernando, Ramos, Capitan, Aznar, Thomas, who we, we talked about the lead character. The story is brilliantly told. As I said, it's well-researched. It's a thoroughly good read. When you think about the Camino now, though, Matthew, how does it resonate with you? Because it's it's now, in a way, linked with you and this book. Are you planning on walking again? Is it? Does it still hold? Does it still? Is there a flame burning or a candle burning in the window for the Camino for you? Uh, I think I, I think about the Camino every single day. Right. <laughs> it's, it, it is intertwined, and 
like you know, even returning from um, from Spain back to Australia and closing the chapter on the Europe part of my life, I um, you know I did little things like staying connected with the Camino. I kept in touch with some of the you know those found family friends um, via Facebook, and then. I did a YouTube video just of my photos with the songs that I listened to, you know, and any time I got a like or a view on that video, it, it, it like I liked it way more than I probably should have. Um, <laughs> and I think I think the book is just the extension of that. Like I haven't let it go. I've held on to the Camino. So now that the book's out, um, I mean, to answer your question, I will absolutely walk it again. Uh, it's funny because it's been so long now, like it's now sort of uh, 13 years have mm, passed. Mm. So I think it will have changed a bit. I know I have absolutely changed in that 13 years as well. There's a little bit of trepidation on both sides, um, to be honest. I, I don't know if it would be the Frances or one of the other ones. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, to answer the question, yes, I would do it. I don't know when that will happen and who I'll do it with. I've walked it alone. Uh, in 2010, um, a lot's changed now. I'm, I'm uh, married. I've got a son, so I think the next Camino will be different, uh, and I'm excited for it. Uh, I'll probably have the same nervous trepidation that I had that first day stepping out of Saint Jean by myself, not really knowing what was ahead. I think it'll be the same. So, and I can't. I don't know what it'll be, but I can't wait for it. How fantastic! Could Once Upon a Camino be a movie? I would love for it to be a film. I won't lie. It's, uh, it's I think it's most writers' dreams. I did think about what, uh, because I think it's got a story that whether or not you've done the Camino or not, I think there's some themes and some storylines that should resonate irrespective. Things on uh, loss and regret and, you know, living with your heart, not necessarily your head. So, so yeah, I think the story resonates. I think given the amount of backstory to do it justice, um, I'm going to turn down the film contract. I can't believe I'm saying this. And I'm going to hold out for maybe a uh, six-part TV series on, on one of the streaming services. I think that would give it enough time to do the backstory justice and for us to get to know those characters uh, and feel like we've walked alongside them for a period of time. I think we might feel like we've rushed it in a 90-minute film so, um, yeah, if any of those premium services are um, keen to talk, let, let's talk. <laughs> I could totally see it as a six-part series completely. It's, 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 it's great, yeah. And I loved that I could relate to a lot of the places in the book, the history, the food, the wine, the musical culture as well. And it took me back to the Camino time and time again. So why don't you take us back to the Camino? Tell us a Camino story. Okay, I will tell you one. Uh, so, as I so twenty ten Camino Frances, I had uh, set off from Saint Jean. I um, was probably on about yeah, I was on the second day, and got into the albergue and realised I was probably uh, I can't remember, but it would have been before Pamplona, so one of the little towns there. Um, opened my pack and thought, I need to change my shirt. And then I realized I didn't bring a second shirt. I've only got one shirt. And I thought, this is going to be a long month. I'm going to have to buy a second shirt. So I went to a little tourist shop in that town 
And I, I had also forgotten the towel. So as you can see, I didn't really think this through with the packing. Was, was able to buy a towel and wanted to buy a shirt. And it was a, tour, a tourism, Navarra tourism shirt. And it was um, bright blue and it had cartoon bulls running across it. And the storekeeper wouldn't, wouldn't sell me the shirt. And my Spanish uh, wasn't great, and her English uh, wasn't wasn't great, and we were sort of doing charades about why she wouldn't sell the shirt to me. And then it ended up that she just found the right words, and she said, "Is ugly," so she didn't tell me the shirt because she said the shirt was too ugly. Uh, I was desperate at this point. I, I did a pretty compelling case that I definitely needed it, and so finally she she um, sold me the shirt. And the the next day um i was walking through um maybe outside of pamplona um walking through a town and came to a little uh plaza and there were some locals sitting around and i hear this voice yell out um hey guapo and i looked over sure enough it was the shopkeeper she was having a drink with her friends (laughs) and she pointed to the shirt and gave a thumbs up so i feel like i feel like i pulled it off um and that shirt is forever in my memories because it's in every second day's photograph of my time on the Camino. That's a great story. How fantastic. I love it. I love it. And I loved the book. I really did, Matthew. Congratulations. I'm happy to give it a plug. It's terrific. And I'm really proud to say that I enjoyed it and I have absolutely no hesitation whatsoever in recommending it to my listeners. So I'm happy to give it a plug. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a real pleasure. Buen Camino. Buen Camino. Thanks, Dan. My guest this week was the Melbourne-based writer Matthew S. Wilson. You can find his book, Once Upon a Camino, via matthewswilson.com. That's matthew-s-wilson.com. The American motivational speaker Dennis Waitley said, Time is an equal opportunity employer. Each human being has exactly the same number of hours and minutes every day. Rich people can't buy more hours, scientists can't invent new minutes, and you can't save time to spend it on another day. Even so, time is amazingly fair and forgiving. No matter how much time you've wasted in the past, you still have an entire tomorrow. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks for your company. I'll be back again next week. Until then, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way Somewhere